this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we're back with uh, an interview. We haven't done one of these in a little bit. Uh, it's been uh, a couple weeks since we've had a special guest on the show. We've been told we're better when we have a guest. I don't know how to right. take that. People prefer to not hear us speak on our own podcast. They prefer to hear the voice of someone else. I yes. mean, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, this is, I'm excited for this one. This is a one that's been a long time coming, Jay, because our formative uh, musical years in the uh, 90s and, and 2000s were centered around a lot of different bands, and um, a few that made uh, large impacts on us had, uh, you know, not just as music fans, but also as musicians. So this is going to be a lot of fun for us to, uh, we're going to be talking with Tim Kasher of the band's Cursive the good life and then also has a new solo record coming out at the beginning of March called no resolution, which is going to be followed with a tour of Europe and then the United States right after that. And he's got a new label 15 passenger that we're going to talk to him about. So welcome to the show, Tim. Hi, you guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we know there are so few musicians named Tim that (laughs) I feel like we have to get them all on. Because it is a, it's like, it's like a four leaf clover. It's just, it's not a name that people rock out to. So I don't think I've ever talked to two Tims at the same time. This is strange for me. It's a weird, it's a weird name to, uh, to like live down to. It seems like you don't really have to live up to anything. You're just like tiny Tim is like the most, is like the most well-known Tim. And I don't know about you, Tim, but I'm kind of a little diminutive, so I've gotten it kind of my whole life. Um, yeah, I'm like the opposite of Tim Duncan. So okay. I, I, I understand yeah. that. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to actually stay with this Tim thing for a second because I just okay. was looking at your website, at the website, and saw you guys were talking about Brainiac recently. Yes, we were. And that, there, that was a Timmy and Brainiac, right? Tim Taylor. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is the year of Tim's. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> well, let's hope so. Uh, it was supposed to be Tim Kane, but we'll just slide on past that. Yeah, ouch. We'll just, uh, we try to avoid all <laughs> politics on this show to increase our massive listenership. We don't want to be partisan in any way. Yeah, and of course, we can't forget Tim Raines, the outfielder for the Montreal Expos in the 80s and 90s. No, we absolutely cannot. An important addition to the Tim uh, (laughs) Cannon, if you will, and Tim Conway. We're gonna just yeah. There's a Kazarinsky. I used to relate to Tim Conway and Tim Kazarinsky because they were comedians. I don't know that I'm particularly funny, but you know, I like comedians. (laughs) Oh, we we started this in a weird place, but we're gonna we're gonna bring it back. We're gonna get it back. So I mentioned. We're going to start over. Hi, Tim. Uh, I mentioned in the ramp up that uh, you have a new label, 15 Passenger, and I'm curious uh, why now, after the multiple decades of working with Saddle Creek, that you decided to um, launch this label? Uh, It's 
been it's kind of been a long it's definitely been a long time coming for uh my fellow partner matt mcginn who uh, him and i've been uh, working together uh our whole life we've been friends and brothers and um been in we started cursive together and we did um bands before that together blah 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 and uh uh, he also had worked at Saddle Creek for a while, and he helped start up Team Love. Uh, so he's a lot, he does a lot of um, behind the scenes business stuff in music, and it's kind of been a dream of his to eventually get here. So that's a lot of it right there. Also, as far as Ted and I are concerned, and I mean all three of us, uh, we you know like back in the '90s, uh, there were the bands like Lullaby for the Working Class and Cursive and uh, Commander Venus. Uh, and, you know, shortly after, you know, and then the faint came pretty soon after that. But we were off, all off doing uh, or uh, working with labels around the country and kind of decided together, uh, you know, like, hey, can't we? We already kind of are, had already started a Saddle Creek and it was called Lumberjack Records at the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, kind of agreed together, like, why don't we all come back together and uh, just do this label the discord and merge left a big impression on us when in the nineties and, uh, to be a part of that was something that uh, we wanted to give it that a shot. And we never totally lost that, uh, that urge. Now you might ask, but don't you have like, well, isn't that what Saddle Creek is? But over the years, and I just really preface by saying that how much I love Saddle Creek I'm still, I'm just a fan of the label and I always have been. I'm a fan of the bands and the people, uh, but it, it, you know, it got really successful. It did, it did uh, crazy well relative to what we ever thought it would have done and became something, it became uh, its own label. Uh, And so this is just us kind of getting back to uh, square one of uh, doing our own thing. Okay. You know, I, I mentioned in the beginning, Jay and I were in bands um, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and Saddle Creek was sort of looked at, I think, by us as being like the next, like you said, merge, Discord, and, and those labels where they seemed very like regionally oriented. And I think yeah. that even spurred us to, for a brief time, start a label, uh, you know, try get our friends to who were in bands to put out records and do comps for you know, artists in our area because we wanted to document the scene in the same way. And um, mm-hmm. I would imagine that over the years, you've probably encountered a lot of people who have had similar stories that um, have had these epiphanies like, hey, I can just get some of my friends and we can document our scene in a similar way. Yeah, absolutely. And it just... Uh, you know doesn't it just kind of feel good don't you like to do it there's not really money in it and it's not why you do it i think that there was maybe a little confusion initially about that (laughs) you know like right i'm from saddle creek you know kind of like uh maybe like try you know the conversations may have started with some sage business advice that probably went something like well you know how the record industry is doing right yeah but uh but uh (laughs) that's not yeah, that, but it really, like, we can't stress enough that that's well. Not only we don't have to stress enough that that's not what it's about because everybody must see what we're doing and think like, well, they're, they're not doing, they're not in it for the money. And I, I don't think people would accuse us of that anyway. Uh, 
But it feels good. It's been really fun so far. I mean, just the kind of the daydreaming about what we could try to release. And uh, and I should, and mind you, we're not really planning on, you know, releasing a lot. We're going to, uh, you know, re-release uh, stuff from the Cursive catalog and then more Cursive stuff down the road and my own stuff. And, you know, we're talking to different, to some different bands about, uh, you know, working out some kind of like fun and unique different uh, releases. But uh it's all it feels like um i was gonna say it feels philanthropic but it's not probably not quite that i mean but we just kind of want to break even i don't know if that counts as as philanthropy or not you know uh but (laughs) we do but we do uh but we feel really good and excited about being uh, about being another contributor to the community so what how would you describe your role within the label what's your job title uh (laughs) (laughs) they didn't give me one uh i wonder what that means uh no i i I, so i'm living in los angeles now so uh i uh, matt ted and i we you know we've been doing cursive is for a long time now and you know it's very unromantic to call it a business but it is you know i mean there's just like business things that have to be done you you know for bands and uh and then we also went in with a couple other partners and we uh, are running a bar now in omaha we own bought a bar called a levers and that place is just great uh and it's a venue it's just really cool uh, and now this is kind of like yet another thing that we're getting into together so i guess we're just kind of business partners for life uh or i hope so anyway i'm sure that's that's the impression that we all have uh but back to the fact that I'm living in LA, I don't have, uh, I kind of get in out in that regard. I, but I, you know, I work, um, on the creative side thing of creative side of things, uh, constantly. I kind of, get, I'm kind of, I kind of get to get away with that. They kind of allow me to do that, which is, uh, awesome. Cause that's just kind of all I want to do in my life. Um, but Still, it's a new label, and there is shit that needs to get done. And we can we're cussing, right? Or we're not cussing, or I'm we sure are. it doesn't matter. Yeah, and uh, but uh, <laughs> so there, you know, so there's still just uh, there's still stuff that's rounding out my days, my afternoons, and my evenings of just other stuff. And I don't, whatever, you know, just boring clerical shit, you know, like YouTube mm-hmm. and uh, Facebook stuff, and uh, nothing, nothing crazy. It's that's the boring answer. Um, have you started revisiting, you mentioned about doing the reissues, have you actually gone back and started looking at those in terms of, are you going to be remastering those recordings or or doing any sort of, you know, um, EQ adjustment or anything like that? Because sometimes people, when they go back, they're like, oh, you know, I, I don't really love the way that the drums sound, so I'm going to beef those up or, you know, mm-hmm. what have you. Have you done anything like that yet? Uh, well, we haven't yet, but uh, other than, I mean, you know, we did the Ugly Organ thing, or I should say Saddle Creek did, uh, but, you know, we were a part of that decision making um uh, yeah we're gonna do yeah we're gonna do stuff like that i mean that those records you know we're kind of looking at we're eyeballing those the first two records that we put in out in the in the 90s late 90s first and they you know i mean whatever it's not like i'm gonna like i'm turning my nose up to them and you know but they, the something done that long ago on like eight ats i think was what we we're doing back then uh, you know, can use they could probably use like some aural sprucing up. Right. Yeah. I mean, a re- recording technology changes, and and 
you as a songwriter and a player and everybody in the band changes. So there's, you know, that's, that's natural that you'd go back and like go, Hmm, well, I'm not sure that that's, you know, the best we could have done, you know, recording wise, fidelity wise. So I think that, I mean, from doing this podcast and revisiting records, you know, we're pretty lucky that I think that by the early to mid nineties, people had kind of figured out recording. Like we've listened <laughs> to stuff from the eighties and seventies. You're like, oof, this is, this is rough. There's some, yeah, there's some uh, bad production, but it seemed like by the nineties, people kind of had at least the, you know, because of ADATs and, and because of a little bit of, I guess, more experience and, not to say there isn't good stuff from the seventies and eighties, but it just seemed like by the nineties, like most of that got worked out. So if it's bad, it's more like just not perfect. Right. And we're talking about, you know, we're talking about underground music for the most part. I'm right. Assuming, right. And so mm-hmm. that's, yeah. So there's around the late, <clears throat> excuse me, around the late nineties, that's when, uh, you know, recording started becoming uh, more uh, feasible to do on a budget. I think. Right. I mean, so oh, yeah. And now, you know, people can just record great sounding shit in their, uh, in their bedroom. What's your take on that? Now that that's possible. I noticed this record, it looked like you recorded in a bunch of different locations. Yeah. Uh, do, do you need to be in a studio or do you, can you do things kind of in a ad hoc bedroom kind of setting? What, what's your, I, what do you want to be when you make records? I, uh, I like to do a lot of stuff alone uh, just because I don't like to have to, I don't want to feel like I'm in um, uh, in someone in someone's hair, you know, when you're trying to like uh, shed ideas or, uh, you know, working on vocal parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been doing that for, uh, you know, I think it was I, I, it was for I think uh, it was for album of the year, which I released for Good Life released in 2004. I'm remembering that that was the first time. I'm pretty sure that was the first record where Mike Mogus, who we worked with, I've worked with a ton, uh, encouraged me to buy like the Sound Deluxe U99 microphone. It's a pretty, you know, it's like it's uh, the low end of the high end and it's been great and it's still in excellent condition. And I've used it on every record since. Um, And I record and it it was his suggestion to me to just kind of start doing doing, uh, my own recording. And it's awesome. It's uh, I've been like I say I've been doing it that, that way ever since, and I've you know become um, you know uh, ap- you know totally proficient on Pro Tools, and so uh, I I for me personally I think it's great as far as um, the music community and other people get, having the opportunity to do it. I've uh, just been a huge proponent of that. The, you know, remember how that was like kind of a big question around the early, you know around the turn of the century. Because it was like, whoa, whoa, everybody uh, everybody can put a record out now. Everybody can record mm. a record and release a record. And, you know, there were those numbers of like, I don't remember them, but I almost make it up. Let's say, what was it like? There was like 8,000 records coming out a year, and then it turned into like 36,000 records coming out a year. Mm-hmm. I, wonder, I wonder how far off I am with those numbers. But uh, uh, we, we could look it up, maybe. Or maybe that's not information that's anywhere <laughs> on the internet. But, but anyway, you see what I'm getting at. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, I just always thought that was great. It's like, what's wrong with it? All you have to do is not listen to it, and if you don't want to, you know, and and uh, and the stuff that's you know should be considered the stuff that's good. It's you know rises to the top, as they say, or you know the cream rises to the top, or whatever adage we <laughs> is that an adage, you know? 
So what is your thought then on curation? Because, I mean, Saddle Creek, that was a big part of what that was. If if nothing else, their stamp on a record meant something in terms You're of quality right. and sound. I was, so like, these, what do we yeah. do now? Yeah, these are fun conversations because that's the other that's the that's the other question that, um, you know, I wouldn't say that's like being asked in interviews a lot or something. But isn't that just like what we like to talk about? like at venues and just like, you know, like sitting around at the bar is like, what is, well, you know, for, it seems like you guys are maybe musicians too, right? It seems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, so most of my friends are musicians and you know, like there's that, that question of like, why a label? What is a label? What does a label do? And, uh, I feel like a lot, especially for like on this, like pretty, uh, you know, uh, underground level, uh, not that much, right? Like not very much, but, uh, what they, but that stamp can just mean a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't mean to, and that's not me discrediting labels. Um, they obviously they do work. I wouldn't want, they, you know, and they, they fucking work all day, you know, and, and but, um, but I think I mean by what I, I mean is like, they're not, the label isn't necessarily, uh, uh, they they're they 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 do a lot of preparation they help you in like preparing and getting ready for that record and to release it and then the then a lot of ways after that the record's kind of like on its own it kind of has to prove itself after that okay. uh, but i uh have a lot of empathy for any bands that are kind of asking that question and looking for am i talking too much this is okay right i mean it's like feeling like less of a conversation it's a podcast this with the <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> like to that's totally cool um, but, uh, that, that I, yeah, that I feel empathy for bands that are kind of wondering like, Oh, should I look for labels? I should, you know, like, do I need a label or not? And it's like, ultimately it's like, yeah, you probably should try to find a label because they're at the end of the day, there's just that kind of weird thing. It's like, well, it's like you're, I think what you're getting at is it's curation. Yeah. And so, um, you know, uh, Kilby court, I'm just picking randomly like Kilby court in Salt Lake city. Uh, you know, they're maybe so upon considering whether or not they think a band can is worth doing on a Tuesday night in April, if they're on a label that they're familiar with and that they know that their that their local community isn't can you know gets behind, yeah, it makes a ton of difference. And your story is different than a lot of the others that we've we've had on the show because we we typically get the um, you know, there was in the mid early nineties, there was the mad rush of major labels trying to sign alternative bands and then yeah, putting cool. a bunch of money in them. And then they, they basically would make a great album and then quickly burn out and then, yeah. and then be left with, well, what now, what do we do? Do we keep going? Do we form a new band? But you guys were more, I mean, that Saddle Creek seemed to be a little bit more like uh, record labels and let's say the seventies in terms of like, you got to grow and develop and just do your thing and naturally progress. There wasn't like this major push of money and marketing and then it's all gone. Um, right. So I guess I, how do you feel like your, your outlook on music is, is, is affected by that um, now? Uh, I'm not sure. I'd see if I'm going to answer that question just by, I'll just respond. I'll respond, I guess, to like Saddle Creek and like the state of late. Well, uh, yeah, let me see. Let me see how I do here. Uh, I guess I do want to say that I think that the reason why Saddle Creek gives off that impression is because they've, uh, always been, uh, uh, 
kind of like wisely uh, conservative. And I mean that uh, as a compliment. And I think that's Nebraskan. It's like Nebraska. It's like Nebraskan conservatism um, that uh, we all kind of were raised in. And I and that's totally me, too. Uh, and that's oddly, it's like that's actually politically even. But uh, I think we all became, you know, like staunchly liberal after the fact. But, uh, you know, we kind of like most of us I think, grew up in like a totally red, you know, red state environment. But mm-hmm. there is um, there is a conservatism that I've gotten from my parents that I uh, respect. And I think that I think that Saddle Creek showed that. And I think they also learned that again from Merge and Discord, who are other who, you know, who are. Uh, you know, label do-it-yourself labels that um, weren't throwing money away at a bunch of stuff, but instead, kind of like let things um, present things carefully and see how they do, and um, and if they start, and if it starts like building, you know, like starts taking off and building steam, then uh, yeah, then you you know you can start putting some more money into it. Uh, that's smart, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. and so then you don't crash and burn. Uh, and as far as me as like a songwriter and as a musician, uh, this maybe is Nebraskan too, I th- or not? I don't know. I can't blame you like credit Nebraska for everything, but I made a decision that I'm a writer, and so that's you know I made that decision forever ago, and uh, and so that's what I do, and it's not. I don't need. Um, so, you know, like, uh, I remember like, uh, pitchfork one, uh, like a, a while back, um, in a, some kind of a review or article or something, um, called cursive, um, lifers, which I thought, <laughs> which we think may- maybe it was kind of a dig at us, but we took it as a real compliment. So it's like, yeah, that's, that's what we are. We are musicians. So we're doing this for life. Like what else would we do? You know, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like life or as in the term, that's kind of, kind of a derogatory term, at least like in the restaurant world, you know, or it's just like, oh, that server over there, well, that's a lifer. They're just gonna, they're gonna, you know, they're, they're waiting tables for this is their, that's their thing. They're not like waiting for the next thing, but that's kind of who I am and what we are. You know, yep. it's, uh, um, we're not, it's not really accolades are cool and you want accolades are great. And again, it helps, <laughs> it helps, um, it helps, uh, the next record, but that's, uh, that's really, it's like you're writing because that's what you, because that's who you are and that's what you love to do. And you hope that the result of the record that you release is um is that it affords you the chance the opportunity to to do the next record and that's all i ask for from the record so i asked something from it you know sure so i i was reading your ama that you did a couple years ago and i was struck by the comment you made about um i'm paraphrasing but essentially that when you make a record you try not to have any expectations whatsoever and i just that hit me as being incredibly um you know just very rational and the right and healthy, I guess, for lack of a better right. way to describe it. Um, have you always felt that way or is that something that's come with maturity as you matured? Uh, I think I've, I've, it's, uh, it's definitely, I'd, I'd be a, just a dickhead liar if I acted like that was just absolutely true, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something that you work. I think it's something that it's good to work on and it's most, and I can also say it's mostly true. Um, that's all a preface to say that, yeah, over the years, I think there's been some records here and there where I get kind of caught up in it. And mm-hmm. I think like, I'll think like, this is a really, this song, this song should be a really good song. Right. And if, and then, and then if, and when it's not, you kind of feel let down or, 
or, you know, bad reviews come in and you just can't, you know, you just can't believe what you're reading or something or what you're hearing, I guess I should say. I, I am one of those pretentious motherfuckers who does try to avoid reading the mm-hmm. reviews. You know? um, but, uh, um, but that's really just when I'm at my worst and I try to um, keep that... Oh, <laughs> sorry. And, I, <laughs> and I, that's just when I'm at my worst and I try to keep that at a total minimum. Mostly it should just be about... Uh, the work you love the work you know you love the, the you love the work of making a record mm-hmm. and you, and you do it and then it gets released and maybe there's some work involved with that and it's maybe not your favorite work but you like doing it because you respect the uh, you respect the uh, you know the role that you have in, as a musician um, but you know you, but then you're like looking at the you're looking at and thinking about the next record well managing those expectations seems to be a theme in terms of uh, how long people can can kind of stay in the in the business or stay with uh become a lifer it's a matter of yeah well what are your expectations because uh, if you don't if you expect your record to sell 100 copies and it sells 10,000 well that's a huge success you know so yeah. if you keep yeah. doing that over and over again well then you're probably happy and content if you can you know manage to survive financially but if your expectations are to be you know, a mega hit band or sell millions of records, well, you're probably going to get disappointed and not stick with this very long. <laughs> so, yeah. And I think that's what happens, or that's why, yeah, you know, if we ever wonder, like, why band A or band B, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, no, we broke up. And she's like, oh, what's going, you know, like, what's going on? It's like, ah, it just wasn't, you know, like, we're burning out. It wasn't going the way we were hoping it would or something. And, mm-hmm. You know, I respect I, re- I respect anybody's decision, but uh, but you do kind of uh, when having a conversation such as this, you do you can kind of ask yourself or consider like, well, what were what did you want? I mean, didn't yeah. you, you know, like, well, didn't you want to get together and do a record? I mean, you did that. That that's pretty cool. You went out and played shows. It's but you know, it, it is hard. Actually, fuck that. I can t- I take that back because I'm still out <laughs> doing it. I play some. I play some really. I play some really small shows that uh, you know that I think maybe a lot of artists out there just couldn't. Maybe their ego just couldn't handle it or something. But uh, what does it mean? What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. You know. Mm-hmm. There's uh, instead. It's just like no. There are some people there, and they're really fucking stoked about it. You know. Right. They paid the same amount. Yeah. You know. <laughs> regardless <laughs> yeah of how many people are in the crowd so yeah i think there was like in terms of that lifer comment there was also like people who would get tagged as like careerists like oh that that guy wants to have a career in music and it's like well why wouldn't you want to do that like why wouldn't <laughs> you want to ha- play music or be involved in making art in some way for your entire life as your career like there's sort of this and maybe it's gone, but I remember, you know, being in bars when we were playing together because um, we're one of those bands that did break up. And uh, we kind of, you know, I think there was also this, well, if you have ambition, well, that's a problem. You shouldn't have ambitions yeah. to yeah, be absolutely. anything more than just playing in a bar. Otherwise, you're a, a careerist with ambitions. And, right. Uh, yeah, I never that I, attitude struck me as very weird, especially considering it was in a bar where their entire livelihood depended on bands coming in and playing. Yeah, yeah. Did you did you struggle with that at all with any bandmates? Did you have folks that maybe had different goals or expectations than you did? Yeah, I have. I've struggled with that. Um yeah. I've had to uh uh 
you know, without, without saying too much, I've had to, you know, kind of, um, turn away from people in my life, uh, cause I felt like they were, uh, bad, you know, bad for me, bad influence or, mm-hmm. um, just like, just so, or just like negative energy, negative energy, I guess. Um, I think that's so, I, that's so, uh, that's so insightful to bring that up. That's, um, and that's funny because it's, it's great. It's a great, uh, it's a great, um, great to bring up in context to, to, yeah, to exactly to being a lifer, to be a careerist is that that can actually be frowned upon as well. And, you know, uh, I think there's some confusion, um, in the, uh, I think there's some confusion about, I uh, confusion is probably not the right word, but there's, I think there's probably some of that. And I mean, this only, uh, I mean this only reverently, like without getting into trouble, I think there's probably some of that in my, in my local scene and I'm calling my local scene Omaha, even though I'm not currently living there. That's like where I'm from and that's my scene. Uh, I, and that's, um, you know, it's just not totally, I think it's not totally healthy, but also people kind of have the right to decide what they want to do as artists, as writers. Um, and it's kind of confusing though. Don't you think, I mean, don't we all kind of recognize that if that said person like that said, um, you know, maybe like super drunk at a bar that kind of has a negative attitude about anybody who's being careerist, that if they were to be like picked up tomorrow <laughs> to, hmm. you know, to go play the Cole Bear show or something like that. <laughs> right. They're going like, to say no. <laughs> yeah, they're going to say no. Yep. Um, but, so what, uh, what took you to uh, Los Angeles? Oh, uh, actually, uh, it's kind of, um, kind of, a, it's kind of an easy answer for me because I just, my wife got work here. She's working. She's, so I'm just, so I'm just tagging along, but I'm like totally happy to tag along. We're having like a, we're having a really nice time out here. How long have you been there? Uh, it's only been, uh, it's only been a little over a year, but we're feeling pretty comfortable and, um, we're feeling pretty comfortable and I'm kind of glad that we're here currently. It feels, um, kind of nice to be in, uh, in like a deep blue state right now. Mm. <laughs> So, and I mean, you know, the weather's great and the people are great and I, I'm just really like my neighborhood a lot, but yeah, the whole blue state thing is kind of nice to, uh, you know, it feels like kind of nice shelter at the moment. I'm in Austin, so it's kind of a, <laughs> a blueberry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can live in fantasy land for a little bit and then I just drive a couple miles and wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. You mentioned earlier about writing and <clears throat> I had read in an interview that you did with the AV club a couple years back, actually five years back. Wow. It's 2017. All right. So 2012, <laughs> yeah. um, you said that you had gotten exhausted of writing screenplays and you were putting them on the shelf. And so you were switching to short stories and, and writing that kind of stuff. And I'm curious if, if moving out to Los Angeles, if you've revisited any of those screenplays since there's an, obviously you're closer to right. the industry and, um, and in terms of the short story stuff, have you looked into or have you considered or, or do you even want to release that sort of stuff in, in book form or, or, you know, or electronic whatever um, form you want to? Is that something you've thought, thought about uh, releasing to the public? I uh, yeah. And I totally I, I mean, I love I just love all I, I guess I love these forms of writing and that's. And that's, it's kind of, it's very much, uh, just the, the three forms being music, uh, literature and, uh, in film. That's, uh, 
aren't those kind of the top three for a lot of us? I mean, I guess a lot of people get into static uh, artwork, you know, like a, um, you know, painting and sculpture and whatnot. And uh, but uh, that's just it's those are the mediums that I that have permeated me and influenced me so much. Uh, and I want to be a part of all of them. But uh, since then, and at that time, uh, at that time, I was pretty heavy, and I was I in and I was. Uh, I was pretty heavy into a book that I was writing and, uh, I did shelf, I shelved that, uh, uh, and I jumped back into screenplays. It didn't have anything to do with, um, my, you know, with my moving out here. Um, I, so I had a, maybe tell kind of a short story. That's me kind of defending my experience in LA and my experience with film. Um, I did move out to LA back in, um, 2007, 2007, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And, um, I lived out here for a couple of years and that was very much a part of, um, I was doing it for the adventure and I was having a good time, but I also kind of want you know, like wanted to meet people in the industry and I wanted to be closer to the industry and I was trying really hard to get a film made. And, um, I mean, it just didn't like go that well and it left me feeling kind of gross and I didn't really like, um, I didn't really like the, how it felt, um, you know, dipping my, dipping my toe into that stuff. And nor did I like the way I felt of who I was of just kind of, you know, like, at risk of becoming some kind of like grody, you know, sycophant to people or something, or just, you know, just trying to, or networking, like networking, you know, it's just like, it didn't, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't into it. Um, <clears throat> and I did get burned. Um, I've been burned like a, like a handful of times on, um, on developing, um, a film on developing a, a screenplay, like to get into production and, you know, like getting everything, all the pieces into place, Enough so that I even start talking about it, which is always feels like a, a bad idea, you know. Um, and then it falls through. And so around that time, um, I did switch. I was like, I just need to be releasing stuff. I can't put shit on this shelf anymore. But uh, but I talked myself into, um, I had a, well, I had yet another script that started getting a lot of people really liking it. And it was getting a lot of traction. And um, that one was getting made. And... And then, uh, and then the bottom fell out of that. And now, um, some multimillionaire owns that, um, script now. <laughs> it's kind of like some other weird story I won't get into. Uh, and well, well that's very American. And, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> my response to that was, um, like, finally, finally, um, I needed to, um, do something, um, uh, myself, which was the whole point of it to begin with. And, uh, and so then I did. So then about two, I guess, three years ago now, two years ago, I finally like shot my own script and, um, you know, actually got it through production, finished it. And um, and so I just feel like I'm finally on track after all of that stuff. And then back to L.A. and like my relationship to that, I guess I'm just also trying to say that I'm doing it. I like to feel like I'm doing it outside of that, um, outside of the Hollywood um structure and uh, i could act like i'm a maverick but it's really just because um it's oh actually i was gonna, I was gonna say because they're not interested in me but that's actually being a little unfair to me um i have had good luck i've had good um, relationships with a lot of people it's just that it's really hard to make things to get things made um, on that financial level and so making things for a lot cheaper and doing it yourself is just so much feels so much better and so much cooler even though you kind of go broke in the process but i you know i guess this is 
like we're alive. We're only alive once. Well, what's the status of the film that you shot? Well, it's so it's called. It's also called No Resolution. We barely touched. We barely touched it on our um, in the bio for No Resolution. So, um, and there's a reason for that. Uh, but uh, so before I'm like repeating myself, um, it's also called No Resolution, and it's so it's uh, it kind of like works in tandem with the album that um, with the No Resolution album, which like works also doubles as the score for the movie. Uh, but, uh, we were kind of, we made a point of wanting to release the album first cause we didn't want to get anybody, uh, we didn't want to like muddy the waters with people thinking that this was just a score to something else. Cause it is very much, um, it's very much just the next, my next record, you know? Uh, it's just that, uh, anyone, you know, people who are familiar with the way I write and work. I just, I'm, I, really get a kick out of kind of building out these stories as much as possible. Uh, and even with something like, uh, like good life had an album help, help wanted nights in 2007. That was one of my, that was one of my scripts that, um, fell through in a bad way. Um, it was like in the process of getting made and then, it, and then it fell through actually due to the 2008 collapse. And then like everybody got scared, everybody got cold feet and like turned. Um, but, uh, so that was also, you know, an album that I did that was working as a score, that doubled as a score for a, for a movie that didn't get made. So No Resolution is my first um, album that will actually be, that's actually also um, used, that also doubles as a score for a movie that actually got made. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. All right. Well, that makes sense because in listening to the album, it's, it has more, it's basically, it's more expansive in terms of it's has more strings on it. You've obviously used strings before in the past, but this has almost like an orchestral sound in some sense. So thinking of yeah. it in terms of a, of a movie score, that totally makes sense. I don't want to turn this into a film podcast, but that that's <laughs> those stories are interesting because I've heard them so many times before because of speaking with um, family members and friends who have worked out in the film industry in LA yeah. And hearing about all the horror stories of things falling through and um, and talking with people who have directed stuff. And almost always I've found and I've been lucky to talk to a couple of people who have made films. Well, they shot them as an indie and then they got picked up. But it's it was always because they found by accident like an actor who had a name and was like, I love the script. I'm going to help you get it made. And it was like more more than a production company or a or a studio. It was because some person who had a little bit of clout was able to say, you know, I'll, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to take a whatever on this, and it'll help the budget and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So yeah, so much, I can I can understand <laughs> the trials and tribulations. So much of the industry leans on that um, on um, the prowess of actors, and uh, we can recognize it in ourselves because that's what we do when we look through net when we like uh, thumb through Netflix. You know, we kind of take a peek at um, who's starring in it. Uh, it's just kind of the way we've been trained, I think, for watching film. Uh, I made a, so again, like I do, I have a good relationship with Hollywood, so there's really no um, there's no like love lost there. But when I did finally make decide to make this um, film like on my own, finally for a change, uh, I was living in Chicago and I had moved to Chicago for the 
that that move I actually really did do to make a movie because I thought it would be a cool, um, you know, just like it's I just think that um, the community there is um, in the you know, in all of the arts are just everybody's just uh, tough, you know, like they do it because they just fucking love it. And it's not about money. And um, that's kind of Chicago. You know, I, I love that city a lot. Uh, and so. I love theater because it's another because it's just stories. It's everything I love. So I was going to a lot of theater, and um, I just found amazing theater actors. And I, and I uh, made the decision to uh, to go that route instead because I just th- I just felt a lot better about it. And I think I wanted to make a little bit of a statement, but um, unfortunately, that's it's kind of hard. <laughs> it's not much. You can't make much of a statement like that if you can't really get people to watch your movie because there's not known actors in it, you know. But but that's fine. I'm going to tour the movie myself like later in the year. So, well, that's how the whole mumblecore movement started. I mean, it was just people that were friends yeah. making movies, and you know, and then after they did it 15 times, you have like the Duplass brothers and Lena Dunham and all them coming out of that sort of movement so i yeah a really big influence for me was um was both of them and uh, also joe swanberg yeah and now he's making movies with like you know anna kendrick and olivia wilde and stuff so but it just took him 15 years to do it yeah (laughs) so which is not unlike being in an indie band i mean you have to sort of pay your dues and play the the backwaters and and do this the small tours repeatedly you know jay and i were talking before we um started recording that you know we saw cursive and the good life i'm in columbus ohio jay used Mm -hmm. to live here (laughs) when we were in the band together we saw you guys i think four times in two years and there was a fifth time that we just didn't make it to was when you i think you played with no knife and and somebody else but between like 2002 and 2004 like it was like every three months there was a Tim Casher project rolling through <laughs> Columbus, yeah. and uh, and that doesn't count like you know other Saddle Creek where it was like Saddle Creek was hitting Columbus like and it helps that we have Ohio State here so that's one of the reasons. Yeah. Um, little, little brothers, little brothers, which is sadly gone. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's that's those are the days though. That was our that was our hang. That place was a lot of fun. But yeah, I mean that's in terms of like grinding it out, I mean, you have to go to like Columbus five times in four years or in three years or whatever <laughs> it was to yeah. establish that sort of, you know, fan base. And now I'm sure you can come back to Columbus and play Ace of Cups or play, you know, whatever the the venues are. And there are people who have been coming to shows now for, you know, 15 years because of those right. repeated visits. Mm-hmm. grinding it out are they, are they bringing their kids yet are you, are you there <laughs> yeah yep absolutely yep i meet um yeah i meet um i've been meeting some young i, I meet young kids now it's pretty mm-hmm. pretty funny you're you nailed it for sure <laughs> but it's kind of cool and kind of cute because they're these yep. kids that as far as i'm being told anyway they're like legitimate fans you know like so you have like six-year-old that just like really likes what you do and it's like really and it's kind of like this whole different they think that you're some kind of um you know they they you're like some actual like celebrity person to them they kind of can't believe it yeah kind of adorable jay i wonder how zora would take to um she's a big (laughs) docking fan jay is a six-year-old daughter who loves docking 
Oh my gosh. And, but, <clears throat> but to your point, like she doesn't get that her friends don't know who Dokken is. So she goes to school <laughs> and she's talking about Dokken. They're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know? And she's uh, like, you guys know Dokken. They're like the biggest band in the world. <laughs> so I'll, yeah, I'll move on to, uh, do you have a recommendation in your catalog that you think would be a good transition from a six year old who likes Dokken? Yeah. What's your most Dokken record? <laughs> Burst and uh, bloom, maybe. Um, really? Maybe I probably, I am Gemini. I think we got a little weird on that one. I'll give it a shot. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's one of the greatest um, things going on right now is Zora's appreciation of Um yeah. So I, I wanted to, uh, to to awkwardly transition. There was one thing I wanted to ask you about in, in revisiting the whole catalog from all the way back to the early Curse of Records into the good life and stuff. When you talked about transitioning to like doing home recording which was with album of the year um mm-hmm. which is also around the time i think that's around the time let's see album of the year came out in 2004 and then yep happy hollow came out in 2006 i noticed in those records that the way you were singing sort of started to change and i'm wondering if that was because you were recording at home and it was just a different setup but i'm sure you like if you go back to the first album, such blinding stars for starving eyes. And you listen yeah. to your voice then, and then you listen to your voice now you sing differently. And I know right. that's just from mat- you know, maturing and getting older and stuff like that, your voice changes, but is that a result of you changing your recording style or was that, is that just a natural evolution of your voice? Uh, that's a great, uh, that's, that's great to um, add that together. And I don't think I'd ever thought about it on those terms. So, yeah, that's probably me getting having the opportunity to spend more time with the vocals and figuring out um, what works and doesn't work. And you know, that's probably to probably to some people's uh, chagrin because they. I know that I'm one of those singers where some people will have a tendency to kind of prefer like the way I did sing. And I don't. And I don't think that they're wrong. I think that to. Th- I don't think they're wrong to think that. Uh, I'm just a guy trying to figure out how to sing, you know, like, and, uh, and by, I think I've made some mistakes over the years, uh, is by trying to, uh, by trying so hard to, um, figure out how to do it right. Uh, I think I have some recordings where I kind of lost, I kind of lost what was, um, you know, uh, unique about my voice. And I'm so, I'm still just trying to figure that out and hopefully, you know, I, I mean, that's that, that's maybe like kind of something that's like a, maybe a lifelong pursuit that we all have of just trying to figure out um, how to or maybe it's just his for me, because I think the vocal like vocal cords as an instrument is just so weird and abstract to me. It's like I can't play them. I just have to like perform them. And it's very strange. Mm-hmm. Um but I like the way that I I, don't, I listen to that stuff. Other than like hearing like how like grossly flat and sharp I am sometimes, I like hearing the way that I sing. Um, I unfortunately can't sing. There are other aspects that now that it's 2017. I mean, I can't sing. I cannot sing the way I sang on Such Blinding Stars, because I just don't have that 20 um, year old's um, ability anymore. But um, but I but I do appreciate the kind of um, abandon that uh, that those co- that those vocals had does that is that all kind of making sense yeah well Uh, i I sort of compared to elvis costello like 
if you listen to like early Elvis Costello, he's he's it's very upfront with his vocal and it's it's nasally uh-huh. and and as he sort of slowed down the tempo a little bit, yeah. which I think you did also, transitioning mm-hmm. from being predominantly with cursive to sort of more with the good life and and as solo records, he sort of you know got more into country and western and then like operas and stuff like that. And his voice became deeper and richer and fuller mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Not that I don't like the early stuff, but it just it's just a different presentation of his voice and he can do different things with it. And I think that's what's interesting about your voice too is like you can I don't think you could have made no resolution in two thousand just because I don't think your voice was ready for it. Whereas now you so, can sort of do sort of different things with it. So I'm really excited to respond to that by saying that Elvis Costello is the best example that you could bring up because that um another issue uh, about my vocals and um, about maybe like why um, I because I do have this conversation not a lot but you know here and there um, you know people do kind of are curious about like the change over the years in my vocal cords. Um, okay, so I have often said that I guess I should that I guess I'm pretty lucky for having this voice that that is so recognizable that people. Um, I have people told me a lot of times, especially with having different projects where they're like, oh, I was at this party and I heard this music and coming from the other room and I didn't know what the hell it was. But it was um, but it was but I one thing I knew for sure was that it was your voice because you can't miss it, you know, um, and the, it's a kind of that weird. Um, it's a compliment for sure. you know. But it's mm-hmm. like it's because it's a fucking weird voice. And I feel really lucky that for whatever reason, I guess I have a, I have like a. Uh, I have a unique voice in that regard. Um, but it's a fucking, uh, it's, it's a, it's a bad voice. It's a hard voice for me. Um, in my head, I sound really good, you know, like it, it's, uh, it's like, it's like the people who sing in the showers, you know, like I write songs and I'm in my head, it's like this fucking really nice voice. And then I sing the way I do and it can break my heart. And I'm being really sincere, sincere when I say that it's really debilitating. Sometimes the reason why Elvis Costello was so great for you to bring up is because, and I apologize, Elvis, because I love Elvis Costello so much. And and that's some of the reason why I was able to do this. But when I, but uh, over the years while I'm recording and I'll get so down with my, with playback and listening to what I'm trying so hard to sing well, and I'll go back and I'll listen to it, and it just crushes me because I sound like a Muppet, and it just, <laughs> it just, it's, it just, that's the way I sound, and, and it can, it can, will kill me, and it'll feel, it'll make me not want to do it anymore, and I would, I've so, so many times I've turned to Elvis Costello records, and I'll listen to him, and I'll think, and I'll listen to the quality of his voice, and I'll think to myself, that is crazy. You know, like, like his voice is insane and people love his voice and I love his voice. And so if you can be okay with how crazy Elvis's voice is, it's like, come on, slugger, just get back into the recording booth and keep doing it. So he's actually given me a lot of, um, he's, he's, he's given me a lot of, um, good positive vibes and as a result. Well, I think people who sing and are fascinating in terms of, um, you kind of hit on it. It's such a weird instrument if you don't do it. So take me back to when did you start singing? And then when did you start identifying yourself as a singer? 
Like, what is that transition going back to when you uh, the music? Well, I um, singing is definitely uh, something. I have just kind of had this uh, attitude for. I, I, I can. I can. I, I've kind of always said that I'm a writer and that's what I am. And I like, that's what I want to be. And I, and I, and I want it to be my strong suit. And I get, and I hope that it is. Uh, and the other things that I do are kind of just like by this or like, they're kind of out of necessity. Uh, even like our first bands in high school, we had a singer, we brought a singer in cause it was like, cause I was writing songs and I was writing the song. It was one of those weird bands where I was writing the songs and I was writing the lyrics. It was like, uh, it was like an Iron Maiden. <laughs> uh, and we had a singer, we had a singer come in. And, you were the uh, Steve Harris. Yeah. And, yeah. Like <laughs> mouthing, like mouthing every lyric behind him. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, uh because I just was, because I'm not a singer. Um, so I'm in some ways, in some ways, oddly, I'm kind of here doing this. I'm kind of a singer today because he kind of stopped showing up to practice more and more often. And so I would have to sit in and like sing the parts so we could just practice until finally we got to a point where I was just like, I don't know, guys. I mean, I guess I'll just sing, you know, <laughs> like, like I'm writing this stuff. I want to write this stuff. I guess I'll just sing. And I just, and I could tell I wasn't a good singer, but, um, but you know, probably around that same time, um, we were starting to, um, we were starting to be, uh, our eyes started, were being opened a little bit more to like the local community and like the, you know, and the, the punk scene where it was kind of like, yeah, what do you mean a good singer? What does that mean? It doesn't matter. You just sing what you're, you just sing your songs. Um, and so I guess we just kind of went from there, but, uh, yeah, I, 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 it's oddly, okay, as we're having this conversation, I also have, and this is not, this is not ego, and this is not, um, I'm not um, boasting, but I do still have people come up and say, like, holy shit, man, you, you know, like, what a voice, or whatever, and all I can think to myself is, that's great, I'm really stoked, I'm really stoked that some people feel that way, um, I know, <laughs> that if you hear me at karaoke or like i mean i get you know like i, I mean it's like your family is the ones that you know will be other ones that will always keep you and put you in your place so i hear plenty from them <laughs> you know because i have like a sister who actually can sing she sings really well but yet somehow for some reason i'm the one with a uh, singing career which just sounds hilarious coming out of my mouth but i do <laughs> well i think that what that has to do with is personality is that you're able to project personality through your voice and i think what Jay and I have learned over 300 plus episodes of this show is that when we go back to listen to some band that put out one record in the nineties and didn't go anywhere, a lot of times because the lead singer had no personality, they just sounded like a Mm. boring version of Eddie Vedder or a boring version of Tom York or, Mm. you know, that's so interesting. And the artists that we gravitate towards are guys like Greg Dooley from the Afghan wigs, because he can't really sing well, but he's got great personality as a frontman and as a yeah. singer. Yeah. And that's what, you know, Paul Westerberg, guys like that. I'm a, I'm interested in guys who, and it just drives my wife nuts because my wife is a music teacher and she can sing perfectly and <laughs> like your sister. And she likes those types of singers, Rufus Wainwright, Jeff Buckley, those kind of guys where I'm like, I want to hear somebody who can't really sing great, but can emote and not in the emo way, but just, give me some emotion in their voice so that it right. sounds like, you know, they're breaking down in the middle of a song. 
and um, that's that's the one one of the few things that we've gleaned from over the years is that it doesn't matter if you can sing; it matters if you can bring something to the table as a personality as a singer, and that's what's going to really attract people, at least yeah. people like yeah. us. So that's really fun too, because you know you can. I mean, it's fun to hear you say it that way because you can also then go back to connecting. Um, uh, you can bring the um, the vocal cord as an instrument back into that, um, and so it's also those singers that. Uh, so they have an aesthetic, you know, like they have a good aesthetic. Um, they have like it's people who have like probably have good taste, like Paul Westerberg. I I feel like you know, mm-hmm. um, or a Dooley. Um, so it's like, you know, so it's an aesthetic and it's them using the the vocal cord instrument. They know how to use it um, in a way that it's the aesthetically pleasing to like our ears, just like we kind of hate the way that maybe John Mayer will wank on a guitar, you know, but it sounds uh, but it'll sound great if um, what Nils Klein does it and Wilco, you know. Yeah. And like uh, Dooley, you guys both own bars, so. Yeah, there's something to be said about owning bars and having unique voices. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Jay mentioned in in going back and, you know, singing and that kind of stuff. I'm curious what your first instrument was. Did you start out playing guitar or did you start drumming or what, what was your first thing that you picked up as a kid? Really, when I was real young, it was um, it was keyboards. Uh, but you know, uh, uh, um, it, I can. But it was just kind of like toy. You know, it was like a, like the SK one that like most of us had. You know, um, the you know that what, it was a Casio, right? SK one. But I and maybe that's kind of maybe that is kind of a cheap to use that. But I only mean I only feel like I have the right to use that because. Even like at that young age, I was trying so hard. I was really feeling like I needed to write things and I was trying really hard. And I even like wrote like little compositions, like instrumental compositions and stuff. Uh, And then there was a guitar laying around the house and I was 13 and it was really hard to play. But um, which showed I think kind of like showed even more like how earnest I was about it because I just forced myself to learn how to play it anyway. I mean, it was impossible to play. It was, and it's a, it was a terrible, terrible action, you know? Um, but then, yeah. So then by the time I was 14, I got my first, um, acoustic like for Christmas and, uh, I still have that one and it's awesome. And yeah, guitar, I think is the right answer. (laughs) Kind of a keyboard. I'm playing drums now. I fucking love it. I love drums. See, that's another thing we Jay and I have talked to numerous people about is that front men who play drums because mm-hmm. it gives you it gives you a different sense of rhythm when playing guitar. Uh-huh. From sure. who 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 we talked to that's played drums Jay. Uh Jay Robbins from Jawbox. Mm-hmm. And Kevin Martin from Candlebox. I mean mm-hmm. bands with box in their name. Jawbox, <laughs> Candlebox. All the box bands. All the box bands. <laughs> the box tops. Yeah. Matchbox 20. I think Rob Thomas is kind of a <laughs> dabbling on the drums. Boxcar Willie. All of them all play drums. Um, no, but it, 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 inf- it, and Jay is a drummer, but he played guitar in our band. Different sense mm-hmm. of rhythm with the guitar. Like it, it mm-hmm. just, and it, the way that it would work with the vocal. Did you notice that, that you were different in terms of how you would play? Cause I definitely noticed it in listening to, especially 
Burst and Bloom, Domestica, Ugly Organ, like hearing your the way your vocal would meet the like phrasings would meet the the rhythm of the song was a little uh, bit different than most people. You know, I can I should give credit to Clint Snazzy who played you know on um, on uh, all the Cursor records up to you know through Happy Happy Hollow. Right. He um, he's one of my favorite drummers and uh, he. Uh, He's really big on, um, he really, need, he really, uh, needs to hear what the vocals are doing. Cause he likes to compliment them a lot and he likes to kind of intertwine and have the vocals reflect the drums and the drums reflect the vocal, you know, like and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So there's that, there's that for sure. Um, I think that I, so I'm, you know, I don't just, I'm the type of writer. And I think a lot of writers or music writers are probably like this, but maybe some more, some less, you know, but, uh, I'm definitely the type that. I'm not just writing um, chords on a guitar or a piano and then like writing a vocal melody. I'm like thinking a lot about what the rhythm is as well. And so, uh, so now that I'm kind of finally getting around to playing drums a lot more, uh, I do feel like I kind of have, I kind of was able to go into it with a little bit of a leg up because I've spent the last 20 years actually sitting around like thinking if that, if that kind of like is a valid excuse, you know, like I think about rhythm and I think about counter rhythm um, and polyrhythm, and I've been thinking about that for so many years that uh, I can kind of I've been able to kind of like apply that to um, my 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 education on drums. Are you are you a desk drummer? Do you uh, yeah. fi- find yourself constantly just yeah. <laughs> playing beats with your hands on a desk or your your legs or whatever? Yeah, my and my wife also kind of has like believes that she suffers from like misophonia, so it's like I have to like pull, you know, try to not like make too many like rash excess noises. <laughs> I wanted to ask about the so the new record, uh, the Tim hit on it. There's a lot of it's a very lush sound, a lot of different instruments, everything from what sounds like maybe a moog to strings, uh, all kinds of different stuff. What's what are you playing on the record? And who else is helping you out um, to fill out the sound from a musician? Uh, um, so, I mean, I work on it. I work on it mostly alone, uh, which can, you know, which is kind of odd and can feel kind of lonely. And you also kind of have to kind of push yourself to try to stretch uh, to expand your ideas just a way out of just like what you would usually do. You know, that's like with the beauty of like working with other people. Right. Um, but uh but I also think it's cool. I mean, I, you know, I do band work and I do. And so it's kind of cool and fun to do solo stuff as well. Um, but I would be remiss to not mention that um, some of the like amazing percussion on there. And I'm not just like fluffing them up. But my buddy Dylan Ryan, who I've been playing with for like, quite a while now, uh, I just really respect his writing. And he wrote some really cool stuff. The beat he did on Break Me Open is just, I think, so cool. And, um, you know, like we kind of made a point to like turn it up in the mix to try to like let it be like one of the centerpieces of the song. And um, so we worked on those um, on that stuff together. But ultimately, it was him behind the drum set, you know, that was um, doing that. And then also uh, and then uh, and so I write everything else. But that is also not so accurate because um I write everything, you know, on like through Sibelius and like in MIDI and uh, but then I send it to my buddy Patrick Newberry, who I've been working with um, since Happy Hollow um, or that's when we first he started first started touring with Cursive and now he started you know, and he tours with my solo stuff as well. Um, but he's musically trained and I'm not. Um, 
And so I send it to him and uh, he'll chart, he'll, he'll like kind of clean the Sibelius charts out. He'll clean the charts for me. But then also um, oftentimes um, I'll also say like, so this is what I did. So this is the, you know, so this is uh, the, uh, this is the strings and these are the, you know, like this is the cello and this is a harmony but uh, I, but I, you know, it'd be nice if it was more lush or if it had more um, texture to it. And he knows what I mean. And then he'll, um, and so then he'll like layer it so it's even thicker. And uh, and that's um, that's kind of like the real beauty of what he's able to do. And then on top of that too, um, he's just like a cool dude who wants to help. So he also um, he also contributes some other stuff too. And there's some stuff on there if we were to like listen to the record that I could point out and be like, yeah, this is a phenomenal. This is like a phenomenal section that Patrick contributed, you know. Mm-hmm. So is the record I'm curious about the timing then, I guess. Is the record written and then the movie written based on the lyrics and or the music or what have you or is it the inverse where you write the movie and then pull the lyrics out of the screenplay? Like what's the I guess right. how, how does that work? Well, um, you know, as far as the movie side, I mean, I'm, it's it's all it's all new for me, and so this is like the first movie I've actually finally actually gotten made. Uh, but uh, and this is an opportunity to actually really sell the fact that this because we were we've been so careful, and again, like why we didn't really talk about the movie. We don't talk about we haven't been talking about the movie a lot yet. It's because we really don't want to confuse people about it and people thinking it's just a soundtrack. Um, but so to even to offer more credence to that, uh, I started writing the record uh, back in 2013 when I was um, when I was uh, promoting adult film, the last solo record. And uh, I took some time off a time away from it because uh, I got adult film kind of got me all like hot and bothered to do um, a good life record again. And so that's and so um, I kind of got into that and uh, in put some of this no resolution stuff, um, kind of on, um, kind of on like a back burner, but like literally like constantly lit back burner. I just kind of was um, focusing on good life for a while. Uh, but it wasn't, I mean, most of those songs, uh, most, maybe all the songs are written, were written before, uh, before the script was written. So, uh, but the thing is, is that the script isn't a reflection of the music. The music, actually, I mean, in some ways, I like I, I kind of cheated because the um, a lot of the No Resolution songs were written for a previous script. This is kind of like, I feel like this is dirty to talk about, but it was written for a previous script that um, oh, the one that um, the one that I got kind of like bought out from under me. Um, but that doesn't really matter because I mean. Uh, it's just like really. It was. I, mean, I was just trying to write great sounding music. I was just trying to write a great record, and um, and I did start after I wrote the script. Um, I did start um, reworking a lot of the lyrics just so that it could all feel a bit more cohesive um, with this project, with this album. I mean, with this movie. But I think that doesn't that also kind of explain the fact that it actually is just an album, and the movie is like a movie independent of the album, but. Um, but all of these songs are are also used throughout the movie. I guess so. I guess what I was getting at is how do you know, or do you always know? I'm writing for solo. I'm writing for now. I'm going to do good life. So I'm going to just that's what I'm writing for. Or do you? Are there songs that you've written where you go, 
this I like this, but I wanna I don't know if I want it to be a solo song or if I want to take it to the band and have them play on it or like right. you're doing three different projects, so what do you how do you know which one goes I mean right. cursive seems to be the one that's electric guitar based, I guess I'd say. So Yeah, and also just like riff based and like weirdness based and um it's just a totally different process that I have, approach that I have to um writing cursive stuff. And so it's actually so in my mind it's really pretty easy to separate um those ideas. But you know, there's still like crossover stuff. I mean uh uh, there's definitely crossover stuff, but mostly the reason why it's so easy to um, not get confused in my head about that kind of stuff is because I just write run one. I, for the most part, I write one record at a time. Um, the example I just offered, as far as no resolution, had started being written before Good Life. That's a pretty. That's a for in my for all the time for the for all the time I've been doing this. That was a that's a pretty rare occurrence. Um, I mostly just work on one record at a time, which uh, is those just they ended up overlapping a little bit. Uh, uh, it, yeah. In your uh, AMA, you said that you use particular chords. Uh, what what are those chords? <laughs> what are your chords? <laughs> yeah. Well, you said like depending on the project, you choose you you make different chord choices. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, I do. I mean, with cursive and anymore, but uh, also that also changes through that changes over the years you kind of like and then you kind of like go back and i find myself then going back to older chords and like right now i've kind of been dabbling with some cursive stuff and um just doing like a lot of tritone stuff because it's like fucking dark you know it's evil and uh uh but you know for solo stuff it's very much uh you know it's uh it's way more traditional chords um i just uh that's me needing to you know, like I, I can attest or I can, I can admit or agree with people. I don't know. Not that people have told me this, but I, uh, that, you know, probably my most interesting stuff musically that I do is probably cursive just cause it's so, it's just such a stretch and it's just, um, and it's just me like overextending my ideas as much as I can to just find truly, um, unusual stuff, at least and if other people think it's like, Hey, I don't think it's that weird. It's like, well, it's weird to me. That's probably what's important, you know, like about it. Um, so it's like, it's totally out of my, um, it's totally out of the wheelhouse of what I feel like I do. And that's kind of the point of cursive. It's just trying, all of us trying to push ourselves to do like, to kind of just like make something fresh or unique or just different or just, you know, again, just like something that's an over over extension of who we are. But, uh, I also just love the tradition of music that we love and I, you know, that we all love and I want to write stuff. I want to write Elvis Costello songs and I want to write cure songs and, uh, right. Don't we all kind of want to do that too? <laughs> and they, so I think that's why I need to do different projects. That's understandable. I mean, that's, yeah, I, I think a lot of musicians, struggle especially when they've been doing it for a long time they want to change up their sound because the same sound becomes dull i mean yeah you know nobody wants to i mean think about what the beatles did in the span of eight or nine years i mean they radically reinterpreted their sound yeah. over that time so it doesn't i mean if you're doing it for 15 or 20 years of course you're going to want to evolve your sound and and do different things and yeah i'm i'm curious when the electronic album will come out 
because uh, there's hints of it on like Novena and a Nocturne and Blackout where you use some loops and stuff like that. It's like when will the straight yeah. up Depeche Mode album come out with? Uh, <laughs> with I was those? yeah I was yeah I was getting real heavily influenced by Portishead at that time and um and you know I'm still influenced by Portishead they're one of the biggest influences in my life um I mean their last album third uh, three or third or whatever they called it um God damn that was amazing uh. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I ended up not like going and in, diving in totally headfirst at that point. But I mean, I could have, um, you know, the faint did, <laughs> and it was awesome. Right. Uh, uh, but yeah, I want to. I thanks for the um, thanks for the encouragement. <laughs> I'll, I'll do it one of these days. That's what we're here for. <laughs> well, we just spent two hours uh, a couple of days ago talking about electronica, so I think that's just where Tim's head's at right now, too. Right. Yeah, if you could do a reinterpretation of Prodigy's Fat of the Land, that would be sweet. Uh, <laughs> the, the the Electronica songbook, could, we could uh, pitch that idea, do some block rock and beats and and uh some some Daft Punk from the from the 90s. There's an, Okay. That'll that'll go over well. Yeah, that's that's I'm I'm going to give you this idea. You can go ahead and run with it for the new label. You do uh, current bands reinterpreting electronica music from 1997, Prodigy, Crystal Method, you know, all those all those terrible bands, but they have to do them on like analog instruments, and we'll see okay. what a, what a disaster that would be. Yeah. <laughs> Smack my bitch up on a ukulele. Let's see how that goes. <laughs> hey, you brought up uh, Brainiac. Um, that's a band that uh, Tim and I heard a lot of. I don't know if we mentioned Cursive in the in the review, but we heard a lot of other bands in their in their sound. Um, I know at the drive-in came up a couple of times. Is yeah. that a band that you have kind of crossed paths with, and sort of what is your memories of of them and and their music? Do you mean like cross paths with them back in the day, as far as shows and stuff like that, or um, just kind of? I mean, I'm a huge Brainiac fan. Uh, yeah, or we're influenced by them and. Just sort of yeah. your thoughts on Brainiac. Yeah, and actually, I've been working on stuff just recently, and uh, Brainiac was tossed around. <laughs> you know, just kind of like people saying, like, oh, that kind of sounds like a Brainiac part. And I was like, yeah, well, it probably is, does sound like a Brainiac part, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Brainiac. They're so cool. They, um, man, they're great. I mean, that's that's a that's great influence, you know, actually for, you know, to hear a band just, like, finding something so neat, uniquely their own. Um yeah, I did. Uh, um, I know. Ah, shit, I can't remember his name. So I, if, you know, bring it up. I mean, I think is Timmy Taylor is he the one that passed away? Isn't that yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was sad. Um, then there was the gentleman who um, went on to do um, Enon, right? Yeah, John Schmerzel. Yeah, his name. I ran into him a few times over the years, and he's a really cool guy. And that was a cool band. Um, yeah, man, just like nothing but total respect for that whole outfit. And I think when we were listening to that record a few weeks back, I, the one thing that I kind of connected to Cursive was there were some guitar tones that kind of sounded like there was an influence there. It's that, mm-hmm. like, I don't know if it's like a electroharmonics, like, electric mistress, or um, there's some sort uh, of, like, what was that pedal, J that you had? The, uh, that electroharmonics box? Um, oh, the, um, it's right here, the... Frequency analyzer. 
Yeah. It's like it's like an octave, strange octave. I feel like effect. You were doing some of that stuff on like uh, Ugly Organ and um, maybe even well, Burst and uh, Burst and Bloom has a lot of that. Yeah, you know what it was um, was uh, the Mooger Fuger. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Uh, I got I had one of those and just like really got into it. And yeah, for sure, that's just like. That was me kind of wanting to align myself with the total weird out people like Brainiac, you know. Um, I don't know if I was like saw it. I don't remember ever remember seeing it as like connecting like, uh, you know, like a direct, um, you know, like line to Brainiac. But for sure, just like being a huge fan of just like weird ass shit like that. um, I wanted to. you know, and I still want to. I still want to like make weird out sounds like that. Is that why you played a Gibson Corvus? Because <laughs> that's a weird guitar. <laughs> oh yeah, um, it's the strangest I, guitar I've ever seen. That um, the reason um, the reason I played uh, Gibson Corvus was because uh, Todd Fink of the Faint, um just way back when i don't know probably 2001 or something like that he was at a guitar show and he, and he saw it and he was like that's a weird ass ugly guitar and and he said you know i bet tim would love that guitar <laughs> <laughs> so he got it for me i think it was like seriously like 150 bucks or something like that yeah i've never seen another one have you ever jay not no i have not I bet those things are now worth something because those you weird know, yeah. 80s guitars are like that were worth a hundred bucks are now like going for like eight or nine hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. These are my these are my couple short stories on the Gibson Corvus. One is that um okay, well so I um the la- very last show of the of like the Ugly Oregon back in, you know, two thousand three or yet four, probably at that point. We did so many fuck so many shows for that for that album. Um the very last show was in Dallas. And I knew it was the last show, and I knew we were going to walk away from it for a while. And so I smashed that guitar, and it felt good. And it felt like an end. <laughs> it felt like an end to something. Mm. Um, but we kept the pieces, and um, and uh, I actually, as a I guess, quick aside, I um, I gave it to a friend, um, a luthier friend, and um, I'm, I think I'm going to bring it out of retirement. Uh, but uh, a, a few years later, I had seen one um, in Tucson, Arizona. And I was like, whoa, huh, look at that, a Corvus, I'll be damned. And then I thought to myself a year after that, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go back to that shop. And if it's still there, man, I should just buy it. And I went there, and it was still there. But I looked at it, and I gave it like a long, hard look. And I was like, god damn, it's such an ugly fucking guitar. Why <laughs> <laughs> like, would I buy that? And so I didn't. But um, but now I'm feeling nostalgic for it again, and um, so then I started looking at it. I was like, you know, I'm just gonna buy a new one. But God damn it, you guys are right. Um, they're expensive now. I mean, you know, not expensive, but yeah, they're like 900 or something, you know, or mm-hmm. maybe 700 if they're like not in good shape. Uh, so I was like, well, why, don't buy a new one. Just like I have one, so I'm getting it. Um, I'm getting it uh, bandaged back together. Yeah, there's one one on eBay right now for twelve hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the same thing that jazz masters went through. They were like in the late seventies, early eighties. You could get a jazz master from the sixties for like one hundred fifty, two hundred bucks, and now you can't get them for less than like five thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. Because once, uh, once um, 
uh, Thurston Moore started playing them, everybody wanted to play them. Yeah, seriously. So it's like he's that's such it's so full, absolutely attributed to that. It's crazy. But forever, because the first time I saw you guys, you were playing that, and I have to say, I was not expecting you to be playing that guitar. <laughs> and it left an impression after that, and now yeah. whenever I yeah. think of you, I think of that guitar. So I'm wondering if all the other Cursa fans associate that guitar yeah. with you. Um, yeah, it's that definitely that definitely is the case. How does that make you feel? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm okay with it. Okay. <laughs> Get some sort of sponsorship with Gibson for the for a Corvus oh. reissue. Oh my gosh, that, let's do it! Can you do that? <laughs> we'll throw a weight around and, and see okay. see what we can do. Thank you. Um, we should wrap up because it is we're approaching the hour and a half mark on our talk here, and uh, it's getting late on the East Coast on my end of things. <laughs> so sure. um, I want to direct people. Who are, who are listening to go to 15 passenger it's one five passenger.com because there's currently a contest going on and it'll be running up till I believe the release date of the new record where if you pre-order the record you are actually entered into a contest to win every release going forward forever is that correct it is it is correct it's kind of fun. Now we said we said that whoever the winner is will probably just like put a a little uh, sticky note up on the wall, <laughs> just be like you know, and like every record that we make, we'll just be like all right, send one to Bobby Joe. Is it transferable by like um, if someone passes away, can they give it to their <laughs> child and then it keeps going? Can you will it to your daughter? Can, yeah, can you? Is it like Green Bay Packer tickets? <laughs> I'm going to say, them? yeah, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> All right. You heard it here, everybody. <laughs> Start making babies so that they can inherit the, the 15 passenger, uh, <laughs> yep. the contest. Um, thanks so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, this is thanks to both of you. This is one we've okay. wanted to do for a long time and this is perfect timing to okay, do so cool. with the new yeah. record. And is there any, uh, I know we are just putting out, the solo record, but pipeline down the road. Are you looking at a new cursive record? It's been five years since a cursive record. So I know it really has been a while. I kind of just kept doing other stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, nothing official. Okay. All right. They do have a, you do have a label for the band. Mm -hmm. So, so even if it's just an EP or, uh, single of some sort that'd be enough in this digital age doesn't have to be a full length it'd be something along those lines just saying just saying <laughs> um and i want to direct people 15 passenger.com that's one five passenger.com go to the Bandcamp page to pre-order the album and then also you can go to tim casher.com yeah <laughs> I, I don't know what happened Welcome to the show. <laughs> we were just begging you to put out a cursive record so you didn't miss anything. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. That was really, really weird timing. I it didn't seem like I hung up or something. It, it um, kind of did. Uh, kinda... Sorry. I, um, I was saying that uh, I can't really say anything. Of, there's really nothing official to say, but we have been talking about that and we've kind of been messing around with some stuff, with some ideas and 
we will probably have more ideas over the throughout the year, and we'll probably have more, something more comfortably official to say. And then you head off to Europe, and you're out there for a couple weeks. Uh, yeah. And then back to the states. People can go to timcasher.com for all of those tour dates as well as 15 passenger and of course they can go to saddlecreek.com to get the previous albums i own the ugly organ reissue like multiple vinyl big packet thing it's very cool i recommend people go get that who are a fan of that record it's worth having even if you bought the uh cd back in the day like i did you can own it on multiple formats it's okay. I'm sure when the cassette comes out, I'll be getting that as well. So with the whole cassette revival, I don't know, who, I don't know why that's happening. It's such a bad idea. I went and bought some used cassettes and I was like, this is a terrible idea. I can't get to yeah, the songs. And you, and you sent one to me. I'm like, I don't want this thing. Well, it was Kiss's Destroyer from 1976. I was going to found it for 50 cents. Come on, man. It's just, it's just nostalgia. Send me more docking records. All right. I have, yeah, a, I have a hungry six-year-old here. <laughs> All right. Uh, I want to remind everybody to please head on over to iTunes, leave us some positive feedback on the show and Patreon for our subscribers. That's it for Jay. I'm Tim. Thanks to Tim for joining us from out in LA. Thanks, y'all. We'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber or request a review at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. Traverse it, but I can't reverse it.